Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast, episode 62. Do you have a negative self-image? Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Fusion Health Radio. Uh, this is a weekly podcast. I can say that because Michael and I recorded last week. <laughs> We're actually on a bit of a, bit of a what would you say, uh, a roll here. Um, a weekly uh, podcast uh, dedicated to your health and well-being. And um, Dr. Michael Smith is the guy that has all the ideas. And I'm the guy here that gives him a hard time and makes sure that the volume's turned up. <laughs> And, uh, and so much more, Anthony, so much more. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, episode 61, if you didn't uh, catch us last time, uh, we talked about the autoimmune spectrum, uh, a very fulsome conversation uh, related to a lot of things that Michael uh, knows uh, to be true around uh, health and well-being. Do you want to give folks a bit of a recap? Yeah, so I think the most important thing about that conversation and its sort of underlying message is given, you know, some kind of complex disease diagnosis, like an autoimmune condition, that's kind of like a full stop for a lot of people where you're just like, oh, you know, that that's where my, my life or my vehicle has been pulled over and it's all about that label. Uh, you know, having spent a couple of decades uh, as a clinician and a bit more of that as a patient with autoimmunity, it's been my experience that um, once you have an idea of the things that are triggering that part of the process and you can focus on a progressive, uh, process essentially, uh, from wherever you're starting towards wherever most people can get to statistically, it's about this sense of duration and direction. So the idea of an autoimmune spectrum is, okay, here's some stages of what autoimmune disease progresses from its first little, you know, hello, I'm brewing in the background to, you know, full on, uh, you know, symptomatic assault of your, your whole body. So there's that idea of progress and you can actually reverse that progress. And that's why we use that idea of a spectrum, because if you're starting at step one and you've gotten into step three, just like walking down a, a set of stairs, you can turn around and walk back out. Uh, along the same set of stairs. <clears throat> and uh, that spectrum is about diagnostic criteria, but it's also about the protocols we would use to resolve it. So it's it's basically, you know, if you're moving through life and you're going in a direction that has a, a progressive positive or negative, you just have to know what the steps are and, and how to assess them and organize your life around making sure you're, you're consistent enough to keep going in the direction you want to go. And it's it's not really complicated, uh, as a perspective on autoimmune, disease, on autoimmune disease, is just very organized around my experience as a clinician. Uh, and I, I've done enough work with other clinicians and symposium, symposiums and things like that where that's just basically the, the organic consensus of a lot of people who work in this field in medicine, which is, yeah, it seems to go in that way in, 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 in a way that's consistent enough that, that, that people can recognize it. And more than anything, it gives people a sense of traction and hope. Mm -hmm. You know, because, you know, here I am and, you know, this is how I got into this and this is how I'll get out of it. Yeah, I think that was one of the big uh, takeaways that I had um, from that conversation was seeing how um, you've outlined these different, I guess, positions where people are actually placed between, um, I guess, ultimate health and 
ultimate unhealth, <laughs> if, if I can say it that way. And um, it almost gave a sense of um, uh, relief uh, to be able to know where, uh, where I sit on that spectrum between one and five. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for a lot of the people listening back to that podcast, they'll be able to um, really sort of settle in and maybe not judge themselves so much for where they are um, and be able to share that with their family and hopefully get more care and support from them in that way too. So, And I think that's, that's the essential part of that whole thing is it gives us permission to be practical. Yeah. You know, because it's one thing to say, oh, no, I'm sick. I should do something to get better. It's another thing to say, oh, I have this specific category of... Uh, changes and these are the exact things most people do that successfully gets you out of it mm-hmm. you know and, and that's that's not something that we really talk about in in medicine around a lot of things because it's just oh you got a diagnosis say hey, well here's the drug or here's you know try fasting or keto or paleo or something but it isn't really specifically organized step by step so it's still kind of gray for people whereas with that view of a spectrum and a very organized way of responding to it, it gives people a sense of like, again, being on stairs or on a ladder, like this is where I am. This is what I need to do. Uh, Essentially, this is why, and this is the probability of this actually working. And and that's huge for people is to say, oh, it's a good sequence. It's clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, And clarity, I think is uh, um, pretty potent medicine when it comes to actually dealing with something as, um, horrible as a life-threatening uh, situation or illness for oneself. Yeah. Knowing, knowing where you stand with all that is, um, I think, sobering. And honestly, the I'm really glad you were uh, used the word clear because the opposite of clear is muddy. And for a lot of people in the muddy realms of autoimmunity, it's, it's, you're more likely to have a muddy conversation with a clinician than a really clear one. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's kind of like, oh, you're in that particular swamp of, ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Well, in, uh, in, if, I, if I look at my notes from last week, uh, one of the things that I, I sort of highlighted, the, uh, um, the conversation sort of steered around to the idea um, where I think you suggested we should do a What's Wrong With Me podcast. Um, and I'm not quite sure if that's what you're thinking uh, we were carrying on with today, with the idea of um, a negative self-image. Is that part of it? Well, yeah. It was just to say, to say I did want to call the episode What's Wrong With Me because that's really not a very polite way to begin that kind of a conversation. Although that's really the first question I would ask anyone to ask yourself is, you know, have you ever said that to yourself? You know, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think we, in our culture presently, that question guides more of our decision-making and more of our internal dialogue than I think is actually healthy for people. You know, I get why we, uh, I don't know, from a big picture perspective as a culture behave the way that we do. And we're going to have to get into that a little bit. Uh, I think to just understand ourselves, you know, as people, but more importantly, I think we really need to understand how it is that we form actual perspective and uh, ideation and things like that. Because if you have a negative self-image, it's because you keep imagining things in a way that, that stir up the negative consequences, you Mm -hmm. know, because if you're not okay, then, you know. I mean, just to reflect back on how we started the show saying, oh yeah, the autoimmune spectrum, it's got these stages. And, you know, if you're in this stage, you do this. When you talk about dealing with insecurity and, you know, kind of what's wrong with me or, you know, what's missing or why am I not like so-and-so or not enough or something, um, it's muddy again. Like we're just in that kind of writhing insecure place where we tend to act out either reflexively or reactively. Uh, perhaps in some random experiment, you know, this is going to be the thing that's going to finally make me feel better about me. 
Um, but, you know, most, most of us, it's, it's a bit of a flailing attempt to fit in uh, to some degree. And, uh, you know, and, and maybe it sounds like I'm talking about just those weird, insecure people, but I would say this is just as um, obviously true, but just not as obviously easy to understand about people who are highly competitive and do really, really well. Because what's driving them to do that? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it just might be a matter of uh, perspective of how mm-hmm. one thinks of oneself too, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the same question. Um, you know, do I have a negative self-image or, uh, you know, as I, as I wrote it there, you know, the what's wrong with me? Uh, what's wrong with me could be something where um, I know what doesn't work for me, therefore I'm not going to do that. And that gives me some confidence mm-hmm. as opposed to other times in my life where it's like, oh man, I just feel like total bummed out and crappy about myself because I know that if I eat this thing, I'm going to feel like total crap for the next week, not going to be able to think, blah, 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 and beat myself up because something's not working inside of me, right? Mm -hmm. Something's not working the way it should. Therefore, I'm going to use that to stab myself a million times with a fork in my back. Well, it definitely keeps us in the realm of familiar. And I just want to make sure I clarify one previous statement. You could be the quarterback of your football team, uh, or you could be the person content to sit on a park bench and ask for, you know, quarters. And in either of those places, you could be a Zen master. Mm-hmm. So it isn't about some magical hierarchy or that everyone in the hierarchy is insecure. I'm just suggesting that, you know, you could be the person who's, you know, begging for quarters and feel terrible about yourself, you know, because you're in that relative place in our society, or you could feel you know, as enlightened as the Buddha. Mm-hmm. You're just like, yeah, why would I go and work for somebody else when I can just sit here and watch the show? Um, and again, you could also be, you know, somebody in a leadership role competitively, like a football athlete or a boxer or something, and be the Zen master, which is why you're so good. Or you could actually be so competitive because you were mistreated as a kid and that makes you profoundly insecure. So it isn't about how you, where we position ourselves in the world or what our diagnosis is. I think it's just fundamentally a conversation about how do people form a self-image in the first place? Yeah. What factors are really messing with that in the modern world Um, in a way that I hope most of us can get our our arms around and go, yeah, well, that's not complicated at all. And and then fundamentally, and and this is going to be probably the weirder part of maybe this weirdest, weirdest podcast we've done is the fundamental structure of how attention works and, and how that changes how we image the world and how we image ourselves. Because a negative self-image is basically a combination of this is the image I have of the world and this is the image of how I fit into it. And if that isn't going well, that's a negative Mm self-image. Sometimes you can see those combining in a way that gives you a super positive kind of almost false confidence self-image, which is precarious and very unconsciously insecure. But, you know, those people usually come off as kind of arrogant. So there's lots of ways we, we form and respond to this, but I thought it'd be a really interesting conversation to just get into how, how this really works on the inside of the mind, not just how to bounce opinions about opinions around, because it's as easy as that is. If you, you watch daytime TV, it never really goes anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And I don't watch daytime TV. Not neither do I, but I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> I see clips on YouTube if I'm really interested in what the person's talking about. But. Is this the part where I start imitating Dr. Phil? I don't know how to do that, but it'd be fun. You know, 
Oh, no, I'm not going to bother. Okay. <laughs> when you do this kind of thing with your family, and then you do this thing over here. And never mind. Yeah. It's, it's been watching. I, I've, I've, heard of, I've heard of that person. I don't think I've ever seen them. But I did see a doctor's, Dr. Oz show a while ago with somebody I really, you know, am, am fond of in, in the the present world. It was just interesting to see what daytime TV is doing now. So, Yeah. Uh, they're not doing as much as we are on a podcast, I'll say. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Especially today, because we're going to kind of go odd. Yeah. Off. Um, so is the idea of uh, negative self-talk, does that have anything to do with negative self-image? I'm, I'm, try- I'm trying to find... I, I think they're kind of the same thing. You know, one, one, one's what's on the screen and one's, one's the commentator. Right. You can't really have one without the other. Well, I, I guess what I'm, uh, what I'm after is, um, uh, you know, chicken and egg, where does it start? Like, do you, do, you, do you think poorly of yourself, therefore you keep talking? Or do you just talk and then you start think, believing what you think? Honestly, the only image that comes to my mind, and I hope this comes across, um, you remember that thing that people used to do in like grade five science class where you would take a magnet and a piece of paper and metal filings and you shake the metal filings over the paper (coughs) and they magically organize themselves into the actual shape of the torus or the magnetic field? Mm -hmm. That. So the magnetic field we all live in is basically modern society. It, it's going to preform how we align ourselves or how the little bits of metal fit into the shape of the world. And um, that's polarizing, you know, in the sense of positive, negative poles. So no matter how we orientate ourselves uh, in, into this, it's the, the field, the magnetic shape, you know, the, the world is the world. You know, you can sit there on the outside of it and throw, I don't know, can, tin cans of old soup at it just to have fun with imagery, but <laughs> it's not doing anything about the fundamental structure of how, how we are in the world. We're, we're just either complaining about it or feeling victimized by it, or we think that we're winning. And, and all of those things can happen simultaneously. My response is that until you're looking at the underlying dynamic of what, of what forms personalities, what changes the way that um, cultures work and uh, family systems work, that's what changes a self. So that's going to change how a self sees itself in the sense of an image or in the sense of progress in life. Because that, that's the biggest hard part now is, is we, we don't live the way that, you know, I, th- I think most organic life really has so far. So we're making it up as we go, which is, you know, kind of cool and badass. But at the same time, we're making this up as we go. So we might want to slow down and contemplate a little bit you know, how, how we're doing this and maybe why. Because hmm. uh, this whole negative self-image, what's wrong with me thing, it's the biggest industry in the world. Well, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's pretty funny that this idea of how we think of ourselves is the topic of today's podcast. Um, and I went into Pack Rat Annie's. So for those of you who don't live where we do. <laughs> There's only 10,000 of us, so it's probably likely you're not here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pack Rat Annie's is a local bookstore here that sells uh, used books. I found a book called The Consciousness of Consumerism. Ooh. Yeah. Written back in the 70s, uh, mid-70s. And it's a dissertation on um, how it is that society was transformed by mass production uh, techniques back at the turn of the century and how... Uh, and I'm just a, a chapter or two into it, but what I've sort of gleaned from it so far is how the um, the Henry Fords, who were uh, wanting to mass produce stuff, you know, he went from producing so many cars a week to 
um, a thousand cars a week because he could use a number of people to automate themselves to twist and turn and bend and put screws in and light bulbs on and all that kind of stuff and produce a car every hour and 38 minutes. But because he was producing so much, um, industry had to re reconfigure how people thought of themselves because thrift was a concept that was really key to society at that time. And here these people were working as wage slaves. Uh, they would say to themselves, I'm working all day long and you guys are making money. This doesn't make sense. <clears throat> these wage slaves were doing work and um, essentially industry was producing so much stuff that they had to find some way to change how people thought about themselves so that they could be the consumers of the stuff that was getting produced. And now we're called consumers instead of actual members of a sovereign, you know, uh, society. We're not citizens, we're consumers or taxpayers. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm just sort of getting into the part, which I think is probably what we're going to unpack it and talk about today. But it's like, um, how does we, we've come to learn about how it is we think about ourselves. And uh, I mean, that's kind of what that, that book outlined. So anyways, just kind of. A uh, little aside there, I didn't want to... Uh, no, I mean, that that's a really great uh, segue because this is all going to be kind of a fractal conversation about <clears throat> what we might call uh, epochs of what form modern consciousness and uh, kind of how we perceive the world. And it's not going to go too deep into the, the kind of the woo-woo side of things, but... Um, I'm really glad you actually started going into the conversation that way because that's that's the thing we really want to ask ourselves is are we really um, in, in our own deep sort of self-awareness and autonomy making and creating our individual self the way that we think we are or are we just basically picking, you know, round hole square pegs that are offered to us based on, you know, what society wants to do? Well, I, I think that's... Um a big question that I've had for I don't know how many years, and I've, I think I've lived a life that doesn't necessarily follow mainstream uh, kind of thinking. I mean, we just said it a minute or two ago. I don't watch daytime TV, and neither do you. Um, and I think that how it is we think about um, just things in general kind of are a bit different, mm -hmm. you know, as presented by the, the previous 60-odd uh, episodes of this podcast. Uh, we've got a perspective on things that are um, a little bit different. I mean, certainly there's some sort of... Uh, I don't know, kismet between how it is you, th you think things and I'm asking you questions and it's like, I'm kind of, you know, forgive the, the, the phrase here, but drinking the Kool-Aid, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm on your team with that sort of idea. Yet I think that there's a, a, a bigger part of society that just really um, does what they do because that's what they've already been taught to do. Yeah. But I honestly think, and that's why I bring up the fractal term is we're just continually doing more focused and organized iterations or repetitions of, of a formula that's been going on probably since, I don't know, say four or 500 million years of, of kind of uh, instinctual response and adaptation. So I bring that up not to get all kind of vague and uh, too much of a distance from the modern world, but there are certain things that we do because that's just what we do. It's just what animals do. And I think when we can have the humility... <clears throat> I think when we can have the humility to actually just sit back and go, okay, this is the, the computer software and hardware that you're born with as, as a hairless primate or relatively hairless primate. Depends on what you look like with your shirt off, I guess. You know, but um, 
Yeah. So the software hardware perspective, I think, is a good place to start in the modern way of seeing ourselves because <clears throat> we are we are effectively helpless to not have the programming we have, but we're also very, very free to change it once we understand it. Mm -hmm. That just takes a lot of focused effort. You can't just, you know, walk through a door and say, oh yeah, I'm going to be someone else because I walked through that door, right? You, you, you got to do the work and... and to change the structure and the programming of, of your instinctual kind of formalized self, you really have to accept it for what it is to, to begin pulling it apart. Hmm. So yeah. is, uh, is that something you want to unpack now? Is that the beginning of this kind of? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that's oh. where we're going to go, but I just want to bring back cause it's, we're going to kind of go, have to go kind of deep into some things. <laughs> and then I want to keep bouncing back into the, the overall context of this, because otherwise we're going to get lost. So here's some questions to just ask yourself if you've ever asked yourself, do you ask yourself, what's wrong with me? Hmm. And if you do, when, where, why, and how, especially the why part, uh, why, another question would be, why am I not enough? I mean, it, if you can say something's wrong with you, you can say easily that I'm not enough. But the place most of us spend a lot of time, you know, tossing and turning is why. Or maybe we squirm a bit harder and say, what can I do to change that? Or at least change how other people think about it. Right. And then we become kind of slightly manipulative narcissists because we're like, I can control how other people see me. Right. Right. And, and there's a squirminess to that. That's, I don't know. I'm very aware that when I do that, that's what I'm doing. And it's a very weird place because I don't do it very often. But if I find myself there, it's like, why am I thinking about the world that way or myself in it? So I would encourage anyone to say, like, do you ever ask yourself, why am I not enough? And then get into the why. And it's, it's BS. But <clears throat> at least you can start deconstructing what you've been told about the world. Uh, another one would be, why can't I stop, you know, X, Y, and Z in the sense of addiction? I mean, nowadays with our phones and with the internet and, uh, you know, Amazon, I mean, if you have a credit card and I know you know this, but you know, I'm just bringing this up for context. If you have a credit card within 48 to, you know, 36 hours, you could probably have almost any object on the planet dropped off at your door. Mm-hmm. That that's kind of new, <laughs> you know, in the strategy of, of, of how, you know, our, our species works in the world. So we can have anything we want and we may be dealing with compulsions based on feelings that we are not enough or that there's not enough of something for us. We just become consumers and shoppers and uh, our, our attention span to what's really important gets shorter and shorter. I think the idea of... Um society as a whole becoming uh, consumeristic is uh, relatively new hmm. as far as societies go in the world. And certainly with this book that I, that I, that I mentioned, it's something that's, that's happened in, in his, you know, the last hundred years or so. Um, and, and yet um, I see many people subscribing to that whole idea of, oh, um, I've made money, therefore I need to spend it. Um, I've, um, I've done a crappy job for whatever, but I've got all this money because of it. I guess I got to go spend it now. Mm -hmm. Like that, that, that whole sort of train of thought is just so inherent to, um, the way people live as a society, um, that I think it's, um, it's very curious to see what more you're going to have to say about that, how, how, how we can sort of reframe our, our thinking around that. So the first thing I would ask people to consider is that a lot of the consumer or short-term kind of reflex satisfaction stuff 
is just fundamentally what you might call pleasure seeking. And there's nothing wrong with pleasure seeking. Mm-hmm. But there's pleasure seeking in the ratio that it's been a part of our experience uh, throughout, you know, the vaster part of our time and our inner world and stuff. And then there's the kind of frenzy of today. Uh, and actually, this metaphor just popped into my mind about a minute ago when you were saying what you were saying. And I apologize if this is, you know, I'm not going to use the wrong kinds of words, but this is a relatively adult metaphor. So let's say that we have two choices when it comes to sexual uh, play and pleasure seeking. One is to really focus on the connection and the, the grind and the move and the, the this and the that. So you can extend the feeling of actual pleasure through connection and sensation that builds to something that eventually experiences, you know, we experience as an orgasm. So that, that would be what you might call the natural way to go about a, a, a nice afternoon <laughs> on your sun deck or something. The more modern way would be now when you have sex, you should be having sex with someone who looks just right, who acts just right, who mimics what you see if you are a person who consumes you know pornography and stuff because you want it to look the way you want it to look. But in this new version of sensuality or pleasure-seeking, if I don't have an orgasm every 15 seconds, I feel like maybe I'm not getting what I, I wanted out of this. Because if you can imagine having that kind of um, relatively plastic but completely controlled pleasure-seeking behavior, why wouldn't you want to have it be like uh, fireworks every 15 seconds? Because if you can imagine it as possible, well, bring it on. Right? So instead of investing in, oh yeah, this is how sex works, this is how pleasure-seeking works, we go about it in this way to try and manufacture a, a way of controlling the whole experience. And if we can't control it the way that we imagine other people controlling it, then that's when the insecurities come up. So what's wrong with me? Everyone else seems to be having magic robot sex every 15 seconds, and I seem to be having this you know, 1950s thing that you know, hopefully takes about 45 minutes. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, again, just a weird metaphor, but... Uh, that's the biggest concern about the modern world is, uh, our sense of gratification is, is almost, this is like a physical impossibility or a physics impossibility, but it's almost like we want to experience the satisfaction before we even enter our credit card into the Amazon thing and send me my pleasure now. Oh, I have to wait for how long? Oh, Hmm. right. Um, I have another take on that analogy. Cool. Um, and this is a, a situation that I used to have with, um, uh, one of my exes, where uh, I would have junk food stored around the house, and um, I'd have a chocolate bar in the freezer. I like chocolate when it's in the freezer, dark chocolate in the freezer. And mm-hmm. every now and again, I'd walk by the freezer, and I'd take a square of the chocolate, and I'd actually have it and enjoy it. And then I'd close the freezer and be done with it. And she couldn't fathom the idea of not eating the whole chocolate bar all at once. And I was like, well, I only want some chocolate. I don't want to eat the whole thing. I know, it, I know it's going to taste the same all the way through. So why would I want to eat the whole thing? And in her mind, she couldn't, she couldn't reason that. She was like, you want to eat it because it tastes the same all the way through. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't have to. And she, she, she couldn't get the, the concept of um, tempering her um, uh, reaction to something being pleasurable, um, whereas I could. Yeah, and I think that brings up the uh, the very nebulous but very important thing of self-regulation. Hmm. 
Because uh, if you don't have self-regulation, what you have is reaction and addiction and, and short-term gratification strategies that, uh, you know, may be one of the reasons why humans consume the world. <laughs> well, I have to say that I would, uh, um, I would have candy throughout the house in different places. Uh, and so, there was one time where she was cleaning out the fridge or whatever, and she found one of the chocolate bars, and she ate the whole thing. <laughs> and I found out about this only after the fact. And um, I was kind of pissed because it's like, that wasn't for eating. She says, then why was it in the fridge? And I said, because it's there so that I can actually walk by the fridge, open the fridge, look at it and go, oh, wow, cool. I could eat that if I want to and not eat it. <laughs> She's like, that doesn't make any sense. I said, it does for me. And, and it's not a surprise you guys aren't married with kids now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So anyways, so I, I wanted to make sure we did take a little bit of a poke at the modern perspective of the world because we're going to have to deconstruct what that's done to us in a way. And I don't, it's not that I'm just some anti-modern, you know, hippie conspiracy person at all. I, I just have, um, so should we announce a trigger warning? If you really like Amazon, they, what Michael is about to say may actually throw you off. No, I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to control how we control ourselves. I'm here as an educator to help us deconstruct some really bad programming. And if you want to keep the programming you want to keep, that's on you, way to go. But if you don't know that it's not up to you, then it's not up to you. Hmm. So we have to undo some things. So you, at least you can hopefully make sure you're sure that what you're doing is up to you. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise it's not. Yeah. yeah. So this is going to get a little bit sort of geek out and heady. So for the listener... For the next few minutes, I will do my absolute best to try and walk you through some subtlety <laughs> uh, about the nature of perception. And um, I'm not sure what minute we're at, but it might be good to check what minute we're at. <clears throat> uh, survey says... About 25 to 26 minutes into the show. So just saying that if you decide, oh yeah, this is the time when he gets into that really weird subtle thing about perception... This is where you're going to want to go back to to listen to this again, because <laughs> this is maybe compressed, but it, there's no other way to get into this without it being, I don't know, thick. Yeah. Uh, press pause and go grab a pen and paper. How's that? That, that might also be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So one of the most important things to be aware of uh, as modern, effective, uh, I don't know, hunting predatory species is... One of the most powerful things that humans have and are aware of that we have is called an orientating reflex. Uh, in Chinese medicine, um, we actually use uh, a combination of the word that in English would mean attention and intention. So it's somewhere between that. You know, I have intention, I, uh, attention, I can see the world, and I have intention, which is how I choose to very, very carefully respond to the world. So we're talking about an area of perception and, and awareness. That kind of includes both. And we call it an orientating reflex because it's the thing that helps you make positive decisions, right? Now, there's a part of that orientating reflex that's just pure instinct, and there's not really much thought in it. You know, someone throws a shoe at your head, hopefully you're going to have the orientation and adaptation to duck. And then there's deeper ways that we orientate to the world that are kind of more stretched out in time that have a certain amount of our own compulsion, our own opinion, our own reaction, <clears throat> what you might call control, control strat strategies. And those strategies will be determined if you're a very insecure person by that need to compensate. So we're all orientating ourselves to the world. 
And <clears throat> we're getting so good at it now with our internal dialogue and things like that, that um, our primary relationship with how perception works is about predicting the future and controlling the outcome, right? Because we're, we're all like a little bit psychic now compared to, you know, your average primate or, or predator. And this whole uh, predictive part of our life is about noticing that there are things we experience that we call negative and things we experience that we would call positive. And naturally, you know, depending on how you're made or bent, <laughs> you're going to find a perfect ratio of negative and positive to give you the reinforcement you need to keep moving ahead. Now that can be formed a lot by childhood, by your education, by, I don't know, how much violence you've experienced and stuff. Because the real ratio between how we move into the world, orientating between positive and negative is about control. And we're all doing this very unconsciously. So as we get more adaptive towards, say, control, and um, we get older and more mature, obviously the first thing we're all going to have figured out is food and sleep and things like that. And then we get into trying to control the whole mating thing as we get older. And then there's mating that has to do with our, our mate, like marriage and sex and kids and, you know, living with someone and... <laughs> <laughs> getting better at hiding your chocolate bars in the, in the fridge or something. <laughs> uh, and then there's more collaborative relationships that we're trying to control that have to do with how societies work. And, you know, we just had a, uh, yesterday we all voted in our small town for the next series of, you know, the mayor and the counselors. So that's us with our orientating reflex to predict how to control the next few years of politics, you know, and that's you know going on uh, all over the world in kind of a sequence and rhythm. You know, this is how we're using that orientation reflex to control the future uh, of, of just social matrix and makeup. Now, when we start to get into that part of it, we also start to notice that there's things like fashion, you know, wealth, things that create a highly predictive structure of how we compete uh, in those ways. And those ways are relatively plastic in the sense that they don't really fundamentally mean anything outside of, you know, did you walk into the Ritz hotel or did you walk into the, you know, circle eight motel that's, you know, one tenth of the cost. And, you know, you get to share your bed with some cockroaches and stuff, but Hey, <laughs> look at the, look at the money you're saving. <laughs> well, that, or, you know, that's just how you're, you're familiar with fitting into the world or, you know, what you may say, how we roll. So it's just really uh, a fundamental way to begin recognizing that we've now become adaptive uh, with our perception, but most of the time what we do with our perception is control the outcome of the future. And a part of that naturally is um, going to be hijacked or um, informed by questions like, what's wrong with me? Hmm. Right? And... Um, <clears throat> One of the places where I think in the modern world where we all get the most lost uh, in, in the sense of actual fundamentally real perceptive opportunities to grow is something like fashion. You know, so it isn't just whether or not I go into the fancy hotel or the cheap motel. Uh, my perception of how to control the world might be just as simply about how much money I spend on my clothes. Now, that's not obviously really fundamentally true. And I saw something... Uh, maybe a couple of months ago on social media where they, they had some meme going out there that the wealthiest people actually spend one, one fifth on their clothing compared to people who are trying to prove that they're wealthy. Say that again, that people who uh, so want to appear wealthy will spend more than 
Yeah, people so, who so actually you, you actually interview the top 100 wealthiest people in the world and what they buy for clothes is, oh yeah, I buy, you know, shoes that cost a hundred bucks and I buy a jacket that costs 200 bucks and I bought, cause I'm, I'm looking for function cause I got a lot to do and a lot of decisions to make. So my orientation to controlling the world is controlling the world cause I'm that, you know, bleeping wealthy. So <laughs> I don't have any uh, illusion that, that the color of my jacket or the, the alligator on my shirt means anything anymore. Cause if I wanted to, I could make up a new brand and sell it to everyone cause I'm that wealthy. So the abstraction of that kind of competition is completely silly at that point. Whereas if you have people who are trying to prove to people that you're, you're, you're in the game to compete, you're going to buy all the $600 shoes and $1,000 jackets because you need people to recognize you can actually pull that off. You know, as you say all that, it makes me think of uh, Steve Jobs or uh, Zuckerberg who, you know, what I've read is that Zuckerberg has a closet filled with the same gray t-shirt so that he doesn't have to think about what to wear every day, right? We're all still ripping off Einstein for that one. Yeah. That was, that was his, that was his, you know, jam as the expression goes as he had nine suits that were the same shape, size, color and everything. So he didn't have to use his big, huge, massive mind on banality. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure his average uh, wardrobe every day is, you know, relatively inexpensive compared to, um, you know, somebody wearing a pair of Nike, uh, Air Jordans that are worth, you know, 200 bucks or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and probably probably more now because people were burning them for some reason a while ago. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> anyway, I, I think as maybe you know, if I had a giant company like that and I was like a total evil bad guy, I would probably try and manufacture something where the trend was to burn my products so that you had to replace them. Just saying, like that that that's that's a part of our society where that predatory that, about the whole thing. We don't even care. Been, it's already been done. <laughs> probably they're, they're called cigarettes. Oh yeah, there's that. <laughs> nice one, Anthony. That was great. <laughs> I just snorted. <laughs> you heard it here first, first, yeah. first folks. I'm losing control. <laughs> so I bring up the fashion thing because when you get to a certain threshold of the ability to accrue money and spend money on things that mean that kind of specific uh, leverage in the world, you're basically one of the most entitled people that there are. How do you mean entitled? Because you're like, you're living at the top of a precipice that you climbed up yourself, that you paid for yourself, that you spray painted with the right kind of fashion yourself to let everyone know that you're a pedestal person. Hmm. So are you suggesting that people, um, uh, all people who spend a lot of money on clothes are that way? Not all of them, but it's, a, I think it, that's a rite of passage you would have to go through to grow up through the, the haze and confusion of wealth. Right. Right. I, mean, I know people that do pretty well with money. <clears throat> uh, not one of them, but uh, it's never been really a thing that I've, I've attached a lot of meaning to. But I, I have seen a lot of friends that went from rags to riches, you know, over the years. And the ones who succeed at that are the ones who go through that whole entitlement thing, kind of like a bad puberty and, you know, maybe a couple of bad marriages and some <laughs> really ridiculously expensive cars or something. You know, but you know, once, once they're through that and they're like, oh, I get this, that the, uh, there's so much more I can do with my, my adaptability and my uh, options here. <clears throat> uh, but then there's people who actually, you know, they, they just fall in love with, with the whole uh, attention seeking, pleasure seeking, short term gratification of wealth. And, and, and they just, you know, piss it all away on, on, uh, you know, fun. And there's nothing wrong with having fun. It's just at a certain point you're like, oh no, I can't have any more fun because I used up all my fun for fun. And now I'm that guy sitting in a park bench trying to decide if I'm depressed or what's wrong with me or where did I go wrong? Or am I the Buddha? Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess those choices are always there for each of us. Yeah. 
Yeah, but sure. the reason I bring up the idea of this entitlement is that um, I think we all have a sense of that in different parts of our life. You know, if it's how we, you know, move in relationship or in the workplace or uh, even within our own mind, the more entitled we are to believe that, you know, we're in control of all of this and our orientating reflex is working without any question. You know, there's no self-regulation, no self-assessment. Uh, we're just like totally bull in the china shop running with this entitlement. <clears throat> I would say that um, I've, I've experienced that a little bit in, in, a, in a certain way. I'm not sure if I could describe it, but I'm familiar, I think, with a certain quality of that entitlement because I'm smart and I'm effective in the world and I can be lazy like anyone else. And I think that's where I get the most hung up in that place. And the reason I bring up this again and again and again is the fundamental experience I feel in that place when I realize I'm just sort of sort of hanging out there is a kind of psychic futility. Psychic futility because... I'm just controlling predictable outcomes in the short term because I can. I'm not being really collaborative. I'm not really being that present. I'm just the entitled kind of, you know, well-to-do kind of person who can get away with controlling enough of the things around me to not notice whether or not I even care. Right. And, and that's where that entitlement and that sense of kind of ennui or lack of joy and futility makes us want to lose control. And I think there's this weird thing, uh, and this gets into like weird high, higher end math and statistics, but <clears throat> there's a few different curves that, that represent behavior. And most of us are on the average curve. We get to a certain level of success and then we mess it up and end up, you know, starting from scratch again. Cause you know, in, in a way we're only prepared for a certain amount of that entitlement and, and, and that power and that, you know, place. Cause there is that, you know, the voice that says, well, maybe there's something wrong or like, maybe I, you know, maybe I'm missing out on something or, um, why can't I stop just repeating the same kind of bad patterns or the same marriages or the same, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's what I was going to say. The, the example that comes to mind for me is friends who are always, um, finding Mr. or Ms. or the right person. Yeah. And then, you know, a couple months later, it's like, so how's your relationship going? Oh, we broke up. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, same, same. Yeah. Same, same. Yeah, same, yeah. same. So <laughs> the thing that happens when we all get into that, you know, kind of what I call psychic futility is we have this deeper instinct to just blow it all up in some way or have it crash around us. Because we know the plasticity of it is stopping us from actually meeting ourselves in a really, really deep and authentic way, mm -hmm. right? And if you want to get past what's wrong with me, well, find out. <laughs> because if you are going through these repetitive cycles of, you know, gain and loss, you're falling back into the loss place because you're not really sure about whether or not you want to keep going in the gain place. Because that's maybe keeping a version of you moving in the world that you don't actually really love or trust or want to be. Because we're all experimenting. It's not like we know what we're doing. We're mildly predictive primates <clears throat> that turned out to be apex predators that have no idea, you know, I, I think in, in observing the world that we have as much power as we do to actually, you know, fix all the things that we're doing wrong in a heartbeat. But that would be boring, right? Because the problem keeps us, you know, in, in a certain kind of edgy place. Mm. So now we can control how the future looks so we can control how we control the future because we're that fractally wound up in this this bit of a nightmare, in my opinion. The idea that just came to mind was how um, 
we're all still driving cars that have gasoline in them. And that's a really good example for the the whole Henry Ford, you know, power dynamic and futility of um, just not being responsible for the bigger picture, right? Yeah. And it, I don't know. There's, there's a few layers to this. So let's just take a moment and go back to the, the kind of bigger context of the conversation. You know, you can only be insecure in an environment where security is plastic. Are you okay? No, I'm just checking the time. Okay. Oh, I, or the, and the battery too. Okay. Just being extra sure. Okay. Just trying to, I guess I'm easily distracted. So, <clears throat> so when we look at this uh, again in the, in the sense of um, what I'll call fashion, you're going to have winners and losers, not just because of the clothing you can afford or that you choose to wear. It's because we have a very, very precise sense of what beauty looks like. So in the modern world, when someone says, what's wrong with me, or why aren't I enough, or why can't I stop doing whatever I'm doing, it's usually in a reflex to the comparison to the iconic beautiful, or iconic powerful, or iconic masculine, or feminine, or uh, overtly sexual, or subtly sexual, whatever it is that we're attracted to as beauty, it's now been sold to us. And I'm going to say this as honestly as I can, it terrifies me when I meet a woman and I realized that the first three or four things that kind of fly through the front of my uh, orientating reflex, you know, the part of my mind that is perception and does guide my decision-making, are not me at all. They're um, ideas that you've adop adopted from somewhere else? Uh, they're completely objectifying um, perspectives of how I see women in the world that are not in any way me. Yeah. They're just memories of things that I have seen in entertainment or in other environments where I'm like, ooh, that's what control would look like, mm. right? That, that's what dominion would look like. That, that's what not being, you know, uh, actually collaborative to, to see where, you know, any conversation might actually go. There's a part of us that's on the pedestal going, hmm, I know what I'd like to do with that. Mm. If you can say that about another person, that's the fundamental definition of they're objectified, if you can think of them as a that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, I just want to bring up that that's a hugely crushing element of the modern uh, subjective human experience because very few of us are the objectified that. So when someone says, what's wrong with me? It's usually because you're not that. <laughs> and honestly, if you were that, no one would ever meet you as you, so you would never be you. So you'd still have that to be insecure about because no one meets you. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but... Um, the times when I've become very good friends or a lover or a compatriot in some way of very, very profoundly attractive women in the scale of our society, they turn out to be the most nervous, insecure, and, and lonely people because no one's actually really ever paid attention to them. They've, they've paid attention to that, hmm. you know, which is and, and in the face of it kind of surprising. You're like, wow, <clears throat> if anyone's getting attention, it should be you. And it's like, no, I'm not getting any attention at all. My boobs are, or my, you know grayish blue ice colored eyes that, you know, 1.2% of the population has or something that now we all just go, Oh, hmm. you know, and, and, and I, I'm not complaining about this. I'm just trying to bring up the context that if you can ask what's wrong with me or why am I not enough? Let's look at what enough is supposed to look like. And, and notice that that's just a bunch of plastic BS that has nothing to do with any kind of encounter with any human being, it's a scale of popularity that, you know, high school came up with. It makes me think of, uh, I mean, 
when you talk about uh, significant others in relationships and that sort of stuff, my mind's just sort of going through the list of women that I've dated over the years. And uh, I've always joked with <laughs> the significant other that I have right now, um, that if you were to stand them all up in a police lineup, they'd all look totally different. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no one type. I don't, so I don't know if I'm any more uh, better than um, the person who has a type. Uh, maybe no type is a type. <laughs> well, can I borrow your honesty for, can yeah. I just hijack what you said to yeah, yeah. make, continue to make this point? So, you know, if I was to be, you know, an anthropologist and Anthony's my, my primate and I'm discussing Anthony's, Anthony's mating behavior in, in the context of what I'm trying to share in this conversation, I would fundamentally be saying Anthony has a very diffuse orientating reflex to predict results because he isn't going up the same tree repetitively. He's going around and smelling and maybe, you know, marking territory in a lot of different uh, parts of the forest to see what actually feels right. And now that's a really mature and authentic way to go about it. So, I'm, you know, kudos to you. Um, Try not to take that too egoically. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> There's any preening on the other side of the microphone. My headphones just got a little tighter. Yeah. <laughs> My head's getting bigger. Yeah. But it, it would just say in, in, in the context of what I'm trying to help people just perceive is that, okay, well, as a, as a primate controlling your future, you're, you're more diffuse in, in your array. Whereas other people would go, I want this colored hair, these colored eyes, this waist, you know, to hip to breast ratio. I mean, I'm speaking as a man. <clears throat> other women may be thinking about ratios and things like that, but um, that's just objectification anyway. But, it, you know, it's, it's nice to know what you like, but it's also nice to know that you actually like what you like instead of you're just shopping for what, you know, someone's painted on the, the front of your frontal cortex as yes. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what I would call just stepping back and getting some perspective on um, that whole, you know, that's how it looks from the other side when you have uh, power and, um, you know, if it's beauty or if it's money or, you know, all those things. Because those people on an instinctual level seem to be gifted. Now, I'm going to start to take this back into, I guess, into the history of human evolution and maybe fundamentally how people actually just grow up. But not that long ago in human society, like you brought up, you know, Henry Ford's time and people being a bit more thrifty because we had to take care of our family and maybe our neighbors and <clears throat> there was no rescue helicopters to come and save the day. So, so we had a natural sense of grit about the world. So people who had whatever kind of giftedness that they had, if it was beauty or money or talent or they're a good hunter or they come up with how to build cars and stuff, that's a pretty gifted person. And, you know, not that long ago when we met gifted people, it was gifted for everybody. You know, my, my mind flits from an attractive woman to an attractive man who, you know, if we see somebody now who looks like a Chippendales dancer or one of those firemen who's doing, you know, pinup magazine or calendars for money or something like that, which for whatever reason is a theme in our world, <laughs> hot firemen. You know, if you see a guy who looks like that in the modern world, oh, you know, if you're, you're a woman who likes that, I'd like a piece of that. hundred years ago, be, man, that guy's really handy around the barn, eh? Because he can pick up, you know, and throw bales of hay all day. And, you know, we, we see the value of a person with physical strength as gifted for everybody. Right. Instead of, ooh, look at that. So this is, this is where we go from the, the kind of bigger picture perspective of me spanking modern plastic society a little bit into like asking ourselves a really fundamentally hard question. Which is? Who is the one looking at this? 
Who is the one comparing this? Who is the one complaining about this? Because that's the software. Say them again. Who is the one experiencing this, asking this question, comparing that person to that other person as a that? Right. Who is the one complaining about how you fit into the world, how unfair the world is, or all of those things? Because until you can get your hands on the actual operating mechanics of your mind and, and your ideation and partially kind of what your instincts do with language, you're just watching the show that's on the big screen of the frontal cortex of your head, trying to choose your, your orientating reflex to behave successfully. I'm reminded of a conversation that I've had with a buddy of mine for... Uh, ever, where we talk about the, to use your, your analogy here, the software um, that we had installed, uh, which basically said, um, you know, uh, find a job, go to work, make money, rinse and repeat. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, may, may make a castle, bring bring woman and babies, <clears throat> get car, have bigger castle, yeah. you know, that that's, and, and, and that's our MO. And, and do it at the expense of yourself. Like head down, lunch bucket under your arm, go to work, go to the factory, come home. Yeah, coal and, in your lungs, the whole, the whole you know, it's yeah. a romantic story, right? And and that's that's a part of the who. And it's obviously social engineering 101, but I'm trying to bring this deeper into like, because this is actually a question we, we ask people when we're teaching them in, say, the formal uh, tradition of Taoism. Who is the one meditating? Well, um, the, my, my, my point with bringing that, that, that story up um, is that from time to time in conversation with him, um, either he'll throw it at me or I'll throw it at him. Um, and he'll say something. His name is Steve and his dad's name is Wayne. And I'll just say to him, I said, he'll be right in the middle of his uh, rant and his discomfort and his misery. And um, I'll just say something to him like, Wayne, why don't you just find another job? You know, to sort of, to sort of remind him of the fact that he's thinking what he was taught to think or mm -hmm. what he was shown to think. Yeah, now that's a, actually a fundamental part of this where our conversation is going to go for the next few shows because uh, I'm going to be un unraveling or <clears throat> unpacking or, I don't know, sharing with the world uh, the next thing I'm going to be doing in the world for a while. Uh, but it's going to kind of start with this, this frame of reference. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of our internal dialogue voices are other people. And that's how far away from being ourselves that we are. And that's why I like to ask people that question. Who is the one trying to figure this out? Because it might be your parents. It might be a lover. It might be <clears throat> a cartoon character you love to watch as a kid who just, for whatever reason, that sense of humor seemed to make the world a safer place for you. And now you're just this irreverent kind of punk in your 50s who's still trying to make sure everyone else gets the joke instead of taking your life maybe a little bit more seriously. Um, you want to hear a really... Bring it on, man. Lame story around this. <laughs> Bring it on. So um, this is going to be a long podcast, I think. Just FYI. <laughs> when I was when I was a kid, so sorry. Let, let's just go back a few years here. I remember being in relationship uh, with the same uh, woman that we talked about with the chocolate bars, and uh, somewhere in conversation, she said something about um, salmon um, from the Pacific Ocean, and um, I said I. The conversation where it ended up, I just uh, said something to her. Um, it was a genuine question in my mind. In my mind, and I said to her, "I said, so, how is it that Atlantic salmon can actually live in the Pacific?" And she says, "Pardon?" I said, "Yeah, I, I heard something about Pacific salmon uh, being um, done in by Atlantic salmon because they're a really aggressive species." 
like, how do they live here? She says, well, they're fish. I said, yeah, I know, but they're freshwater fish. And she said, pardon? I said, yeah, they're freshwater fish. And she says, pardon? <laughs> I said, the Atlantic Ocean is freshwater. And she says, are you kidding me? I said, no. And I was totally serious. And she's like, where the hell did you get that idea? And I said, and I had to stop and think about it. I had to stop and think about where that idea actually came from. And I realized that it came from, of all things, a TV commercial. Do you remember Captain... So, if you're not Canadian, I don't know if they sell these in the state, but Captain Highliner it used to sell fish sticks. Or maybe he still does. Or that, 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 that brand, whatever. <laughs> I'm sure they're still out there doing their thing. They're still out there doing... If there's any fish left on the, on the East Coast, they're still doing that, right? And somewhere in there, the phrase, you know, fresh from the Atlantic Ocean... Oh, turned into uh, fresh water from the Atlantic Ocean, right? And so it, I'm like 35, 36 years old, believing that the Atlantic Ocean <laughs> <laughs> is totally fresh water. <laughs> and she's just looking at me like, are you nuts? And I'm like, no, I'm serious. <sighs> and so as much as I admit all of this, <laughs> and I believe what she said, and th that the Atlantic Ocean is, uh, is, is salt water, I still don't believe it because I haven't been there. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay, Fusion Health Radio fans, we need to get a Kickstarter campaign to get Anthony on a bus. <laughs> We'd fly him, but I think he should be tortured on a bus to go through this particular rite of passage. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, man, it was like somebody had taken a bat upside of my head. Oh, yeah. And when she said that, it was just like, wow, I have believed that for so long. And as an adult man, I was totally like flabbergasted. <laughs> Flabbergasted to learn that the Atlantic Ocean is not fresh water and that it's salt water. And there you have it. Oh. And poor Michael is actually wiping tears from his <laughs> eyes. <laughs> no, I just love that you said as a man in the world, because it's just such... Uh, remember that thing about magnets and metal filings and stuff like that? And oh, how yeah. How we fit into the world without knowing how we fit into the world? That was the perfect like little oh. spanky little moan of like, yeah, that's how we're supposed to be, brother. <laughs> Yeah, well, not. So I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm happy to be a, a bright and shiny uh, dummy example, <laughs> and another beautiful human doing 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 life, right? Yeah. But seriously, folks, we have to get Anthony into the Atlantic Ocean because he's deluded. <laughs> you guys are all lying. I used to, I can remember. I can remember as a kid looking at the the map that was actually up on like in grade school. You know, like the map is up on the wall, and actually looking for the line that went between the Atlantic and, and the Pacific. Because <laughs> I was convinced that there was something in the Arctic that I would actually see some sort of line, you know, it's, it's where an, the salt it's water an invisible actually... Life, uh, it's, it's an invisible ice window, kind of like the aquariums, Anthony. It's real. <laughs> really? <laughs> sure. And there you have it, folks. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, I mean, <clears throat> perception's a pretty open per, uh, perception. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you know, that that piece of software was installed in my head somewhere as a kid and rightly or wrongly I totally believed it for uh, 30 odd years I'm still convinced that it might actually not be true but <clears throat> there you go that's my uh, that, 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 that's what I do here on the podcast I actually shine a light on all the things that Michael's saying <laughs> in everyday English <laughs> someone's got to do it <laughs> well thanks for that little tear uh, cleanse uh, apparently we uh, get rid of a lot of unnecessary neurotransmitters for for leaking through our should, eyes. Should we give our listeners a few minutes to actually stop laughing? <laughs> well, I'm hoping they're laughing as hard as I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm laughing, so. Anyways, so, um, uh, as I try and <laughs> reorientate myself to the orientating reflex of exploring human orientating reflexes, 
<coughs> the question that comes up next in, in, in the little parade of ideas here is, how was your childhood? I was eating Captain Highlander fish sticks, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess the question would be, were you force-fed, you know, the fish sticks in a cage in your basement or on a pedestal because you were the special one of the children or there's a lot of ors to that, mm-hmm. right? But nothing is more f- obviously, like capital O, obviously formational in, in the structure of our personality, our ego, our defense mechanisms, our control strategies than what your parents and siblings and extended family and teachers and crosswalk guards and hopefully not too many naughty uncles to, you know, include the, the darker side of this. Uh, all of that has formed us up, up until probably, I would say, your late 20s. You know, you're, you're effectively still resolving childhood to adulthood up until, yeah, late 20s. Hmm. Well, isn't, uh, uh, isn't there some sort of line, um, I'm the resi- result of all the ancestors who stood before, uh, behind me or before me, or what, what, what's that expression? Um, what is that? It's from Gladiator. Um, <clears throat> what we do now lives on in eternity. So in, in the sense that, uh, you know, the more effective we are in the world, that echoes through time, but especially with your offspring and how you raise them. So mm. you, have a, you have a really good traditional family system that produces hopefully effective people in the world. That family system works until the world changes. And then there's going to be a struggle and a reorientation because it's about orientation reflexes, which happen in moments in your mind, but over generations and families. Yeah. It's, it's the most fundamental instinct I think to be aware of, which is why I'm really, really wanting to keep saying it out loud in, in the show, because it's going to be fundamental for people to take advantage of what we're talking about, because it's literally about grabbing your mind, your life, your karma, your breath, your posture by the steering wheel and actually choosing where you're going. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, that's a big, a big operational thing that, you know, a lot of us would rather be in the back seat. And hope that society or your family or your bank account is steering you where you actually want to go. <clears throat> so uh, I'm going to go through the next little thing because we've talked about it before um, on a podcast. It was one of the ones we talked about First Nations and Native American thought. Uh, and it has to do with what we call the four puberties. Because when we look at who is the one meditating, who is the one, you know, operating your orientation reflex. You need to place yourself in, in the arc of transformation of being, right? Because if you're going to ask, you you know, who, 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 who am I in the sense of what, what software am I running with? You know, you really, in my experience, have to ask yourself, am I still running the adolescent software that's the only thing for sale on the shelf of the Western world? Because you actually have to go out of your way to grow up into functional adulthood based on, well, older cultures that had the time to see it that way. <clears throat> Through things like rites of passage or ceremonies of saying, oh yeah, well now you're an adult at 30. Instead of, oh, well you're 18 and you got hair in new places, so you're obviously a grown up. Off to the world with you and, you know, don't, don't, you don't need to grow up anymore, you know. And, and that's insane, but that's a big part of the, the problem is we have the orientating reflex of an adolescent. And, you know, if we look at sort of say, I don't know, one of the bigger, scarier, more orange looking, you know, politicians in the world right now, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a, a more immature person in their seventies 
make more immature decisions immaturely for the sake of proving to the world you can still be immature hmm. and have power. Right. So, so now we're at the, the, the most dangerous moment in, in our collective adolescent adventure, which is maybe we should call, call like, I don't know, I think like in soccer, you get like a yellow card if you're making a little mistake and a red card if you're bad. I think we should be throwing some red cards on the, is this really where we want to go with the dialogue and discourse of the mature <clears throat> decision-making component of our society is how adolescent can you get away with? Because I mean... Remember we talked about these kind of curves where, you know, we get certain degrees of successful hit a kind of psychic, you know, futility, and then we flail and break it all apart so we can start again and try something new. I think we're at that precipice with just the context of maturity in our culture. Because mm -hmm. if, if we don't recognize that this is what's really wrong, well, we're just going to keep doing it. Yeah. And I'm not bringing that up to just pick on people like Donald Trump and people who think he's actually got anything else to say besides, you know, fart noises or something. Um, there, there's a fundamental, I don't know, kind of philo philosophical message here, which is most cultures in the world don't have a word for I that means me alone. Most cultures in the world use words that inside the language refer to how you fit in and collaborate with other people. I mean, to take the extreme version in, in, uh, in the Diné language where my grandmother's people are from, the word or the sound we use inside of words to in, in for ourself, it actually means uh, this one of whatever it is we're talking about. This one of the people in this room or <clears throat> in this tribe or in this part of the world. So, I mean, imagine, work, imagine living your entire life with that perceptive, perception of self. Oh, hello, this one of the group in this room is going to add or subtract to the room and everyone in the room, instead of, hi, this is me, and I am separate from everyone else in this room, and I will, you know, poop on the floor, or play a banjo, or do something, and you can't stop me. Ha ha ha. It's very different. Right? So, so it's just saying, you know, the, the problem that, that I would say from the perspective that I have, uh, culturally and, you know, clinically, is I think we need to really accept that we're not, we're not maturing on purpose anymore or immaturing on purpose to see how far we can go. And that's a, that's a part of the orientated reflexes. I think this is a bad idea. Let's keep scratching the itch until, you know, we break the skin and, and, you know, get the pus out and <laughs> figure out what's really wrong in there and then move on. Because, you know, you do have to go through a transition into adulthood by letting go of certain traits and, 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 and sort of, I don't know, dissociative reflexes. At a certain point, you know, we have to go from adulthood into a more mature version about adulthood where you're mentoring people or you're giving back in some way. And clearly when you look at the most wealthy people in the world, very few of them have made any kind of attempt to actually do anything to mentor or give back in the world. And the ones who do have signed uh, a living will that basically says at the end of my life, this much of my wealth goes to my family because they deserve a certain amount of all the stuff that I did, but <clears throat> I'll give 90% of my money to, to charity or to... I can't remember what Elon Musk said. He's going to take 90% of his wealth at the end of his life and, and put it towards getting people to Mars or something. I, I don't know if that's true, but it was something along those lines. So th those are human beings that have hit that stage of mentoring, which is, oh yeah, look at me be a badass in the world. And the only way I can prove it is to give what I've come up with away. You know, in certain tribes, in, in uh, native tribes in North America, especially on the West Coast, do something called a potlatch. 
where, you know, the wealthiest person at the end of the year basically fundamentally has to have a big party and give away almost everything that they own. And because they're effective people, they're going to probably have most of that back in three months. But for three months, everybody who needed a break or needed a shirt or could use a, you know, you know, a couple of extra fish or something are doing great because we had that self-regulating part of, of, of culture because there was still a maturity to give back. It's not something that you necessarily see in uh, uh, Western culture. No, no, no. Not why, at all. Why, why would you want to do that when you could be the iconic guy on a pedestal waiting to see if you have a psychic freak show or not? <laughs> <laughs> Right? And then we get into the, the idea that the, you know, the people who should really be making the big decisions aren't the adolescents, although they should have a vote. Aren't the adults, they're too busy raising kids and making money. You know, they shouldn't be making big decisions, although they should have a vote on which of the big decisions makes the most sense to them. People doing mentoring should probably be in, in part of the politics, you know, where the decision-making uh, is made based on collecting really good questions and coming up with really good ideas but it's the elders. And again, I'm speaking referentially to cultures that have a, a slightly more mature view of how to be a human in the world. It's the elders who would sit down for maybe a few weeks and just talk about it, you know. You know, and in the, in, actually in the culture that the U.S. and in Canada borrowed <coughs> for their uh, political constitutional system and, and the, the houses and, and the the Speaker of the House, is actually modeled on the Haudenosaunee, the Six Nations uh, Confederacy of the East Coast, uh, who had one of the biggest living, peaceful, like peace-orientated cultures in, in the Western world before Europeans showed up. Hundreds of thousands of people covering, you know, thousands of square miles uh, of, of territory. And what they would do is have men who are mentors, you know, in their 40s and 50s, who are eloquent their job was to be orators, to speak of the truth, to speak of new ideas. And the old people, especially the old women who are actually the ones who owned or were the keepers of the whole, you know, country at that, for part of that country at the time, they were the ones who agreed to, uh, you could say, vote on the side of the best orator, the person who was the best at defeating the fear and the insecurity in other people through speech. Right now, now it's turned into this very weird adolescent argument thing. If you've ever spent more than 10 seconds watching, you know, our, our collective governments <clears throat> actually sit there and argue in, in the, in the house of whatever it's, it's turned into a high school pissing match, you know, whereas, you know, maybe even 500 years ago, it would be a very patient, you know, celebration with a lot of humor and clowns and other things going on to try and make points about, you know, how, how the world might need to shift two degrees left or right. Well, I think the clowns have still carried on. Yeah, it's just, just <laughs> that they, they, they're no longer foils of, you know, <laughs> a little bit of a break. Now they're the show. <laughs> so the reason that I wanted to walk people through that isn't, again, just to drag people, you know, through what uh, Aboriginal cultures are about. It's to ask ourselves, you know, there's a way to ask yourself who is the one making the decisions to control how you control your life. Are you doing this as an adolescent? as a completely formed and, and autonomous adult, as a generous and, and wise mentor, or as a very, very wise and patient elder, right? Honestly, we're all a bit of all of them. Mm -hmm. It's just that in this culture, we're not really given a lot of modeling or examples of the mature way of doing it, right? So if we all have the orientating reflex of, you know, young adults, it's no surprise that this is where we're at and that one of the fundamental questions we walk around with is the fundamental instinct of what's wrong with me. 
because mm-hmm. it's actually an instinct. If I want to be a really functional adult in the world, in the sense of a collaborative culture, I have to fix what is out of whack. That's my job. It's just, it only works as a job when you actually use it to get somewhere. Hmm. You know, why am I not enough? Oh, right. Because I keep, you know, not applying myself to things that matter to everyone. I just apply things that matter to the three people that it matters to. If you're, <clears throat> you know what Fortnite is? It's this new video game that's, I don't know, a group thing. I've played it. It's really fun. Um, I, I don't know people who actually make money now playing that game for money. Wow. People just watch them play a game that they're good at playing and send them money to watch them play. Wow. Right. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying we're that bored and, and, and that un, uncertain of what really matters that we'll actually invest in watching other people play a game that goes nowhere, does nothing and means nothing. Although it's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not against fun. I'm just trying to like frame it with people. Like, you know, we're, we're all on a, a train to somewhere and none of us seem to think that driving the train matters. We just want to look good and make better decisions so that it's a more comfortable, pleasurable train. Mm-hmm. And that's not getting us anywhere. I'm taking a lot of this in. So if I've uh, I've been a little quiet with whatever you're saying here, it's because I'm just sort of um, still in denial about the fish ticks. And I'm also... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm mean, kidding people. We got to get, it was about two grand together to get Anthony to the East Coast and throw them in the lake, <laughs> ocean. <laughs> See, it is fresh water. There you go. Uh, I'm, I'm just sort of... Um, uh, taken aback by how it is you're describing this because it really makes sense to me with um, how I've seen myself uh, be in the world at different points in my life. How I've seen myself be an adolescent. How I've seen myself be uh, in my 20s and in my 30s um, to the place where I am right now where I'm really uh, comfortable with the position that I have in the world based on how it is that I see it. Like whatever part of that little magnet lineup example that you gave, you know, how, where it is that I'm positioned in that whole sort of, um, universe. Um, yeah, it, it's very curious. I mean, yeah. And it's, I mean, if there's a point to the last 20 minutes is uh, this conversation is about whether or not you are fundamentally your orientating reflex, or if you're basically riding it around, like you're a drunken cowboy and it's the horse. Hmm. Right. As long as it gets you somewhere interesting, you're not even paying attention to it. Right. Right. And as long as it's repetitive and consistent and predictable, because humans are so predictable or are highly determined by our behavior is determined by our ability to predict the future. Right. So if it's always the same decision tree, you're not really predicting the future anymore. You're just repeating the same thing. Kind of like that matrix show, you know, you're either in a feedback loop that's designed by other people for what they want to do with, you know, your calories or you're doing your own thing. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, you're supposed to be doing your own thing. <laughs> you know, if, if you're actually going to become, you know, who is the one meditating or what's wrong with me? Well, if you're not asking who you really are, or what you really want to be in the world, you're going to basically buy into the, you know, the soup du jour. You'll just end up getting carried away in the current, I think. So to say this another way is if we can, uh, if we can accept that, you know, the more we can actually steer our lives with our orientating reflex uh, in decision-making and predicting the future and controlling outcomes, 
that's basically going to be either a short-term, reactive, impatient, urgent, stressful thing that will reinforce the sense of, oh yeah, well, there is something wrong with me. I'm not enough because my life is this, you know, frenetic and intense. Um, Or we start using our orientating reflex more intelligently and learning to very skillfully and very carefully extend how it is that we're adapting to the world in the future with respect to the past. And this is where you have to be a bit of a shaman. You have to be really, really aware of your awareness because you can get hijacked into other things if you get too caught up into the long-term sales pitch. You know, oh yeah, I want to retire at 55 with a really fat, you know, uh, 401k. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but that seems to be the modern meme for I'm doing okay and I got money in the bank. If if you're in the States. Well, in the States, but I'm just saying that's sort of in... in In, in, the, in the sense of modern culture and, and, and how most of us sort of think about things, it's going to be determined by Hollywood. Because if you watch TV as your source of what the world looks like, that's that's what the world looks like. Um, and honestly, I have no idea what that sounds like in Canadian because I don't put money in the bank because I don't have you know, that kind of money to throw around. Because uh, I don't work more than I have to because I'm busy doing other things. Like podcasting. Or, or just the things that I choose to do with my orientating reflex to be free and autonomous in my life. Because... Mm-hmm. Um, we can all become wage slaves to whatever, you know, debt we, you know, procure every month. And I don't want to go go too far afield with that. It's just to try and bring people's attention to the the realization. You have to get really good at being present. And then you have to get kind of good at throwing, like if you're fishing, you know, some bait into the future a little bit, and then, you know, crank your little reel to move yourself in that direction, aware that it may or may not be a good idea. But at least you're you're navigating towards something, and you're aware that you could be doing this unconsciously to control whether or not you have to be, you know, oh, I have to be conscious today, darn. Instead of like, oh yeah, being conscious is actually really, really, you know, the win. So until we're really on a sort of strategic trajectory that really fills us with meaning and 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 a sense of kind of devotion to the world by any sane definition, you're kind of flailing Hmm. or you're the Buddha and you're just hanging out in the present moment, kind of smiling at the whole thing, which I'm just saying it could go either way there. (laughs) Uh, But what most people really get the most out of in, in my experience is when they actually stop, you know, buying into the short term reaction and control stuff and start actually seeing themselves growing into the next thing. If, you know, from adolescent to adulthood, it's usually the first thing for most of us is, okay, well, what's that actually going to look like in the sense of what you're going to have to give up? Right. Because that's, that's in our consumer culture. Give up means, you know, that's a negative, right? Because you got to have more. It's bought and paid for, man. I got that stuff. I don't want to give it up. Yeah. It's mine. (laughs) Instead of like, oh, I'm tethered to something that, you know, it has meanings that no longer matter. And, and that, that's just growth. And I think that's the, the thing I'm really speaking to is you can't grow without purpose. If you don't see where you want to be in the world, you're not going to be anywhere else because you seem to be okay where you are. But if you're asking questions like what's wrong with me, then I think maybe not. And that's normal. That's actually when, when the conversation really gets good. You know, last night in conversation, um, I was actually reporting on the, uh, the mayoral race right. here and was actually in, um, uh, one of the candidates' camp, if you will. Um, the candidate who lost was the uh, current mayor. She didn't get reelected. And uh, I asked her, I said, so how does this sit with you, the fact that you didn't get reelected? 
like what you know what comes up for you and she says well she says i knew what i wanted to do but uh i wasn't really attached to the outcome and i said really she goes yeah kind of mostly she says i knew that regardless of whatever happened i would have some kind of emotional reaction to it and that's about as far as i took it i said well how how very zen of you she goes yeah and i said and it doesn't bug you that you just lost a sixty thousand dollar a year job she's like well if i'm honest no and i said wow that's really great she says well i kind of prepared for it you know like she she the, the whole time in her um uh her tenure as the mayor she was anticipating um change at the end of it so when it came to the end of whatever it was you know when she came to stand at the edge of the cliff she was just like well i don't know what's going to happen next and she just stepped off the edge mm-hmm. right and she was okay with whatever happened yeah that's probably because she's okay with her so <clears throat> uh you know just to use that person i know who i know her myself um you know, when people are that mature and autonomous, you know, they would look for a job like being a mayor because that's the give back thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's probably a good gig in the sense of how much work you have to do for your, your bank or whatever. But the people who are that self-aware and aware of self and comforted uh, as a self by ourself and your orientating reflex isn't some random association of flailing. It's actually a really decisive you know, if this goes well, I'll keep doing this. If that doesn't go well, then I'll, you know, look at other options. But then there's there's no self, um, the part of us that's always trying to define ourselves as good or bad isn't going to be controlled by the outcome. It's going to be controlled by our response to the outcome because that's what confidence really means, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah, that didn't work. I'll move in another way. Instead of like, oh, that didn't work. I suck. I should just you know, go on, I don't know, take out drug abuse or something <laughs> well I, I left that conversation thinking that um she's deb doesn't matter what it says on her business card mm-hmm. right and that that's what adult would, uh, i think that that sort of third stage of adulthood where you're like yeah i'm giving back now and you know no matter what happens i'll find the the resources and the gumption to to move in another direction to, yeah. to be of service in some way and yeah. even if it's just doing silly things like you know right now we're making a podcast and we're putting it out there for people there's a give back part of that Right, which is, yeah, we're just going to see if we can help some people out. Just think of all the people out there right now whose minds are totally blown that the Atlantic is salt water. Or fresh water. There's only one way to find out, people. (laughs) Dial now. (laughs) You're right. Operators are standing by. (laughs) 1-800. Buy a cool shirt. (laughs) Anthony will be dunked in the Atlantic, head first to taste the water. If somebody wants to buy me a ticket to the East Coast, I'll be happy to jump in the lake. Ocean. (laughs) Saltwater ocean. (laughs) Well, I got to compare, right? <laughs> oh, okay. I will throw you in a lake first. Just gotta so go in a lake sure. first and then I'll go in the ocean. And I don't even, I don't even swim. So there have you, you go. Have you, have you ever actually been to the East Coast? Mm, uh, Montreal is about as far east as yeah, I've gotten when, when, when you get really far east, the color of grass and moss is greener. You know, that's the expression that people say, the grass is greener. Like Anne of Green Gables greener? I have no idea. But I can say from my own personal subjective experience that having been on the other side of the country and having put my foot in the it's, it's apparently the, salty water but i'll let you figure that out for yourself uh it's literally a, a different color of green it's all that fresh water i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> they water the lawn with it okay so there is a couple other quick things to, to throw out there for people um and this is just meant to begin a, a, a like i said a conversation that's going to go on for a, a few shows 
<coughs> probably interspersed, um, probably interspersed with, you know, some happy fusion health geek outs on food just to keep the, the people who want to listen to that stuff, you know, happy too. And reports from the East Coast. <laughs> and if, we're, if we can get you over there, we'll figure that out too. But there, there is one last thing I want to bring people's attention to, just in the in the sense that we've talked about uh, consciousness and the orientating reflex. We've talked about what may be in our way as a not-so-collaborative culture. We've talked about uh, what maturity kind of looks like in, in different ways from a, a modern Western to a, say, ancient human kind of perspective. And that's all just about how it is that we can see ourselves in the world. So we can get comfortable with, like, if I'm not even sure who is asking, who is the one who's meditating? Huh. Should I feel what's wrong with me? Or I should ask myself, who, who's actually me? Like, how, how do you get closer to the fundamental choice point of who you really are? Now, if you want to have a, a good narrative, you know, you, you might want to start writing your biography because your reflex to who you are is to tell a story about yourself. And I, I think we all need to be able to do that a little bit. It's like having a good resume. But then there's this other thing, and this is a bit of a rabbit hole. And I'm going to do a really quick drive-by because I'm sure we're at hour 17 or something now. Don't don't even look. I don't want to know. Oh, he's going to look. Uh, yeah. Oh, Hour, hour 16. Yeah. So. <laughs> Episode 61, hour 16. Yeah. Anyway, Sorry. so this is going to be quick. 62. So one of the things that we're going to get into uh, on and off in, in, in the next few episodes, uh, as well as fun things about food and exercise, um, is going to be around this sort of neurosomatic therapy or what I'm calling neurosomatic behavioral therapy. Because it's kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy, but it isn't just about your internal dialogue or your narrative. Because your narrative is as useful as the parts of you that are basically addicted to confirmation bias. This is how I talk and think about me, makes me happy enough about me to stop thinking about me. I go back to automatic. If you're going to go deeper into who is the one meditating, you're going to have to do some meditating. Now that may not look like you sitting in a chair hoping to become the Buddha someday, or it might. Um, but what it is going to ask you to do is to start taking a little bit of a scalpel <clears throat> and, or maybe a microscope, um, or Sherlock Holmes's little special magnifying glass or something, and to start looking more perceptively at actually how we perceive the world and what makes up your orientating reflex in, in a more juicy and, and more, um, intelligent way. Intelligent in the sense, not so much that you're just smarter, but intelligence in the way, in the sense that it gives you something to operate with, you know, a bunch of dials to, to get your hands on and play with. And, and again, I'm sensitive to the time here, so I'm just going to do this really quick. So one thing we're going to learn about a bit later uh, is how the Western ego is fundamentally uh, organized. And if we go back to those metal filings and stuff, you know, our, our Western ego is organized very much like a medieval castle. And uh, we want to take that apart at some point to give people some really, really clear uh ways of interacting with themselves in a therapeutic way to, to get more intimately aware of the who. And a lot of the who is very, very instinctual and, and that may or may not be satisfying for people, but at least it's there, it's predictable and it's consistent enough that we can all use it in some way. Right? So if we were to look at a, a castle, we're just going to look at it in three very, very quick parts because, um, it invites people to begin being more perceptive of yourself. So one part of that castle or one part of the mind, one part of just natural instinctual animal behavior 
in terms of that orientating reflex is the people that you might see on the wall or at the front gate. Their job is to look for opportunities, look for dangers, and try and stop interactions with things in the world that we prefer not to interact with, or obviously to, to deal with things that are dangerous. So when, when you become more familiar with yourself, I would always say, well, step one is take a little scan around you. Uh, sometimes we can use the metaphor of a person with a, a submarine with a periscope. What's wrong? What, what's out there in the world that could cause problems? Or, hey, that person's kind of cute. Maybe I should move over there and say hi. So get familiar with that part of yourself because it's often the most informative throughout your 24-hour day. Right? And we, we, we flit in and out of, what's over there? <clears throat> Who's that? Is that good or bad? And as you get more familiar with really how you're perceiving that, you're going to get more clear with how you respond to those instinctual check-ins with the world. Right? But, it, you, you know, and this is what awareness is like. It's like, oh, that sounds boring. It's like you're doing it automatically anyway. Why not just, you know, take a little peep at, at, at how you operate there? The other part of our, our human nature, especially now that we have this, you know, urgency for narrative and, and answering and... Uh, the use of language to, again, control how we control things. There's this whole inner part of the castle or inner part of the ego that I would call like the ambassador, your <clears throat> inner salesman who's like trying to make appointments with people and, you know, hey, this is me, I'm pretty cool. And then you have a narrative about how cool you are, you know, or you might have a narrative about how insecure you are. And there's a part of us that's constantly negotiating with our internal dialogue about how to maybe, you know, this is something I... I I find humorous when I find myself doing it. And a lot of people spend a lot of time doing this. We rehearse conversations we'll probably never have. Mm -hmm. Oh, if this ever happens, I'll say that. And when you get underneath of it, you're like, oh, I'm really compelled to control how other people think of me, which comes from what's wrong with me. Am I not enough? Should I stop? Because <laughs> it's a very addictive environment and it's very comforting and soothing in, in a way, but it's also as insecure and neurotic as anything. Would you say that that's different? than um, rehashing conversations that you yeah, could that, that we just do that with the past, right? So we're either rehearsing or rehashing, you know, oh, okay. about 60% of the time when we're actually aware that our, our perception is linguistic or narrative. It's mm -hmm. not just responding um, instinctually to what's going on around us. It's We're in there kind of chewing away on something like, oh, if I get this just right, and like, I know for some reason it'd be like playing with Play-Doh. If I can get this just the right shape, people will see the shape and then I win. Hmm. Right, my, my orientating reflex from the inside out has now produced uh, a narrative or a, a way of talking about myself that is the best resume ever. Right. right that it's finally, you know, gets my parents off my back or, <clears throat> you know, informs my child that I'm not as bad as they seem to think I am or, you know, whatever we're dealing with. Uh, you know, and there's kind of the, you could say the military of the inside of the, the mind is there too. The warrior who wants to go out there and, and be the proud, you know, fighter who might sacrifice themselves to the flag of the king. Uh, or whatever, you know, your narrative says is the most important thing about, you know, how you live your life. And then, you know, I, I could probably spend a long time in there, but there's a lot of players in the mind that just spend a lot of time chewing on opinion on, and on narrative and on belief and on, you know, how, how you fit into the world. But if it's compelled by an orientating reflex that's still just instinctually fidgety, uh, it'll be a relentless t place. And a lot of people, that's actually where crazy happens. When you talk to counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, the thing most people are dealing with is the relentless, repetitive weirdness of their narrative. 
Now, obviously, if you're a sociopathic person, <clears throat> your narrative is technically crazy because you think about pushing your you know neighbor into the traffic with your mind because that would be kind of cool to see what would happen. Um, you know, but we, we, we all are a little bit kind of, I don't know, goofy upstairs when we're not aware that you have a choice because you can use that very tactically, very practically and, and in a very mature way to cut through it and, and become completely aware of who you really actually are. And this gets us to kind of the third inner sanctum of your, your castle or your ego, which is actually your authentic, you know, self, which is some balance of masculine and feminine instinct and, and other things. That's actually the one that actually makes the most important deep decisions, right? Because you're making them as your actual authentic self, whatever that actually means. But there's something that all meditative spiritual traditions, all indigenous warriorship traditions and shaman traditions say, what you're really trying to do is defeat all of the BS so that you can be the person you're going to be when you die or when you face the biggest decisions in your life <clears throat> and are no longer willing to come at the world with some BS or some short-term thinking or, or something that society gave you because it's too important to lie mm. or too important to just sort of cheese your way out of it and go, meh, whatever. Because, you know, I, I would say when I've done counseling with people and we get into, tell me about the three or four most important decisions you've ever made. And people say, oh, well, you know, when I got married or after this person died and we had to deal with family shenanigans and stuff, I really had to dig deep, right? And it's that dig deep place that's the place most of us are trying to get to and stay. Because that's actually your only real birthright as a conscious, you know, autonomous being is really... Are you you or are you your conditioning? Hmm. And it's always going to be a weird salad of all of that stuff. But the thing I'm really wanting to hope to kind of walk people through you know, randomly through the future episodes once in a while <clears throat> is to keep going deeper into this process uh, of what part of my attention am I in? What's its function? And do I actually, you know, am I using that successfully or is, am I just repeating the same thing over again? Because it's kind of addictive to just control the world by having the same result no matter what happens. It's, it's very safe, right? It's never new. <laughs> mm -hmm. Often it feels neurotic and, and, and hopeless, but, you know, for some people it feels safe. We have to also get in, in touch with the, the narrative producing, you know, leather chewing part of the mind that's always trying to control conversation and opinion. Right. And, and why would, why would, why, as, as if you actually really know who you are and live as your actual whole self, why would you ever need to like be anything else than just really right here, right now in a room with people? And the reason would be is you don't trust yourself. You feel you have to practice and manufacture a self. And we're taught to do that because it's a part of growing up. You and I are now officially in our fifties, so you know we're, we're we're old and smart or something. So I think it's instinctually more likely for us to to lean towards uh, self awareness and self respect, right? So you can't just have that immediately, but at least you can see that as the direction you're going. You know, in maybe twenty five years, when you and I are elders and maybe really have some wisdom to share. <coughs> Um, you know, it, th things would come across differently, but more importantly, our internal orientating reflex would be completely like a self-guiding vehicle because it wouldn't need all of the knobs to have some confirmation that you're going to be okay because you're just doing you. You know, this is a totally weird aside. Um, and I just, it just 
it feels like it needs to be said for whatever reason, and it's going to seem really weird. So a few months ago, Melania Trump was going up some, you know, through some airplane or something like that, and someone took a picture of a jacket that said, uh, I don't care to you. I completely misunderstood what that quote said. What did you think it meant? I thought it said, I don't care, do you? Right? So instead of us all trying to find some formalized group opinion of what the hell's going on, why don't you just do it your way? Because that's, that's how I kind of live in the world. So when I saw that quote, I said, oh, awesome way to do that. Yeah, yeah, I don't really care how the world really, really works. As long as we all do ourselves really implicitly and authentically, it's going to be the world it needs to be for all of us, right? Now, I get that that was a completely other conversation and that quote meant something else completely differently. I'm just trying to uh, take the polarization of what that turned out to mean for people compared to what it might have meant if, if we saw the world a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe the very, very last thing I'll say is if the world really is what it seems to be, each of us is really called to come into the world as completely as we can be for the rest of us. Because every person that I know in my life, yourself, my kid, my family, other other people that I uh, feel have a really deep connection with, my only hope is that every person I know gets to be fully themselves. And, and if there's any way I can call that out of the people that I know in some way, that seems to be the thing to do. Because that's what I, I feel compelled to do in my life is find out who I really am and, and see if I can truly show up in the world. Hmm. And there's no way to know what that's going to look like or else I'm, it's the metal filings and somebody else's magnet. And I'm imitating what I think is going to work instead of really finding out what will work for me. So again, if we all do you in the sense of just find out what your implicit self-nature is and live it, kindly and patiently, hopefully, because most, I don't know, adults are relatively kind and patient, um, that that's what the world will become. But it all starts with an instinct, which is what's wrong with me? It's not just blanket insecurity. It's the first thing that begins the process of growing. Interesting. I'm, I'm, uh, trying to catch up to the ideas in my mind here. The, the, the concept that we all have this, uh, uniqueness um, that is lost on some of us is um, uh, what's the right word for it? It's not surprising, but it's also a bit disheartening because I I, I like to think that everyone has some inherent uh, role to make sure that we all um, continue. Yeah, and the danger of the saying it that way, and I'm not slapping anyone, but the danger of looking at it that way is we're all supposed to find our uniqueness. <clears throat> the danger of that is it puts us right right into the middle ground hmm. of the mind chewing on the leather of how can I actually fix that by thinking about it. Unless you, you know, and I'm not suggesting that's actually what you mean. I'm just saying uh, my first response is I want to make sure people don't take it that way because you don't want to go back to your inner ambassador and try and figure out how a unique would look. Because the only way you're going to be you is to stop trying yeah. and just get out of the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I, th- I think when I, 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 as, as I, as I experience it, the idea of uniqueness isn't so much about, um, um, hey, look at the clothes I'm wearing. You know, I'm wearing uh, tan pants and a, and a black sweater. Therefore, I'm so much better than you are because you're not wearing that. I mean. <laughs> I'm not wearing anything. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, fresh water. (laughs) (laughs) 
I just lost my thought. The, 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 the idea that we're all unique is such that it's like, um, it's not that we have to try to be unique. We just, we, we just have to know that who we are is, uh, is okay, right? Mm. Um, yeah, so fundamental tenet in Taoism is don't try. Yeah, like somewhere that, that's always occurred to me in my brain. And I'm nowhere near Dow. Mm. I'm sure they know what the Atlantic Ocean is. <laughs> <laughs> Yin and Yang. There's got to be the Yang, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So. So. Anyways, it's 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 a it's a. Um, I, I'm I'm imagining our listeners having to listen back to this podcast uh, in the same way that I'm going to, because I'm not sure if I've had enough time to actually think about what I'm thinking about whatever it is that we've just said. But that, that's the only point of the conversation is we need to be a bit more respectful of the fractalness of how we grow. Right. Because there's patterns and they're, they're kind of synchronistic and, and consistent. And as long as you can bring your awareness into that and through that, you're going to have the most fun you could possibly imagine having because it's real. Right. It's not fake. It's not, you can't buy it. You, you can't pay someone to figure it out for you mm-hmm. well they can get some help you know getting out getting out of your own way maybe with a good counselor or something but i mean that, that that's that's the i mean if i was to say i have a message to the world it's investigate confusion hmm. it sounds get, like it. get get into what's what's really like just garbage that we're all just chewing on all the time because it's right in front of us and we don't think of it that way because we don't think about it at all right Right, because we're we're kind of in we're, we're kind of encouraged to go on automatic, especially in the adolescent sense. Well, that's uh, there's a bumper sticker on a truck that I've seen a couple of times in town over the past week. It says, "You don't have to believe what you think." Mm-hmm. Right, it's totally the same sort of idea of, um, you know, you know, poke at yourself to to sort of help yourself grow or try to understand more of of who you are and who you aren't. Yeah, my my favorite one that keeps rolling up in social media is, "Hey, man, don't worry." Nothing's under control. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because I didn't, I mean, I think I've said the word control 17 times in in the conversation that is meant to warn people. When you try and control the outcome of things without actually being conscious, blah, it's going to go badly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, control is a choice word for today's podcast for sure. So next Next podcast is going to be all about the mechanics of craving sugar and carbohydrates. Well, just, just, just to give people something really, really, call it a popcorn episode of like, we're going to just geek out on the thing that makes most people mentally and emotionally kind of off kilter. Because honestly, it's, and I'm just being really honest with you, Anthony, and everybody else listening, if we're going to get deeper into how to guide ourselves into a more relationally mature way of being... You're going to have to control things like hypoglycemia and stuff that just turns you into a very impatient, erratic, emotional person. Because uh, well, if, we, if we can't get to like normal metabolism, I don't think we're going to deal with higher structures of psychology. <laughs> well, and I, I think we've had that sort of uh, conversation woven through the podcast um, over the episodes where, um, I mean, if it's certainly for me, and I'm going to suggest that it is that way with other people as well, that, you know, how does I think and feel about the world is totally dependent on how it is I think and eat mm-hmm. or, or eat, uh, think about what I'm eating as well as what actually what I am actually physically eating, right? So, yep. yeah, it's all connected. Yeah, so I'm trying to find a, a fun way of having kind of left foot, right foot episodes because now we're going back to doing it weekly again. Um, I'm thinking like one week we'll go into some deep dive on the, the, the weirder side of where I'm taking... Uh, uh, 
my practice in the sense of healing and helping people sort stuff out with the stuff that like, you know, the brick and mortar of your body and how it works and what, what to do about it when things are going sideways, yeah. just to balance it out kind of like body, mind, you know, cause this is about health, like lifestyle and, and mindset and. You took the words right out of my mouth. I just, just want to make sure we, we, we cover our mandate really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, I think we're done, huh? Yeah. I'm going to go get some fish sticks. Um, <laughs> Thanks for all the laughs though. That was, that was really great. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't cried laughing in a, in a while. Yeah. Good. I'm glad to help. <laughs> glad to help you're doing an awesome job at helping me laugh myself silly yeah good uh fusion health radio your favorite podcast because it's the one you're listening to you can find us all over the internet um there is a website i keep threatening this website coming soon uh and as i look at michael with disdain and as he avoids my eyes <laughs> fusion hey health. look there's a flock of turtles out the window there you can see them look everybody don't think about the fact that i haven't written those two paragraphs in a month because i keep forgetting yeah there you go fusionhealthradio.com okay. coming soon fusion health radio on facebook already exists fusion health radio at gmail.com is a way to connect with us please share this with your friends especially if they too believe the atlantic ocean is fresh water because maybe we could meet at a flat earth meeting and just <laughs> change the world um, yeah, seriously, uh, share this with your friends. That's the best marketing that we actually have. Uh, Michael and I thoroughly enjoy what it is we do here behind the microphones. Um, and we're coming to you, uh, with all kinds of great intention for you to be a bigger and better person. I know I am for being part of the podcast and I think Michael is too, if I can put that absolutely on you. Yeah. Yep. Uh, this has been episode 62. Do you have a negative self image? the Fusion Health Radio podcast, the Health Lifestyle Mindset podcast. Thanks for listening, folks, and we will see you next time. Blessings be. Have a great day. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.